And we'll start with this day in history. And I have three dates. 1424, 1877, and 1963. So I've kind of spread it out a little bit. The one in 1424 is a little obscure. <laughs> if, if anybody guesses that one, uh, you know, my hat is off to you completely. So I'll just give it to you. Don Alfonso V of Aragon grants Barcelona the right to exclude Jews. <laughs> Everybody remember that one? That'll come into play a little later this morning, so keep that in mind. All right? So the next one is 1877, and this one you probably remember. Actually, the next two dates are somewhat tenuously related, only in my mind, I suppose. This uh, 18, 1877 is related to something that occurred in the United States. It's not political. Uh, it is, has to do with technology advancement. There, there's your clue. It involves this guy. Hmm? This is the date on which Thomas Edison recorded himself saying, Mary had a little lamb, which is the first voice recording. How did he know that? How did he know that? How did he know Mary had a little lamb? He was just guessing. Uh, I was reading some background on this, and... You know, it said that he sat down and they were just going to try and record conversation. And when the disc started spinning, he just blurted out, Mary had a little lamb. And it recorded it perfectly. You know, that picture that I just showed you, though, uh, another thing that I found out, you know, this was definitely a staged picture, obviously. There's nothing around. They do have a contemporary picture when he made the recording. And that really surprised me a bit because the pictures that we have in our heads of, of uh, Thomas Edison, you know, especially in his later years, they are all very distinguished, very, you know, here he is on the day that he made that recording. <laughs> it, and I'm not kidding, that is Thomas Edison uh, contemporaneous to when he made this recording, and, and, you know, he's the guy I'd want to go work for. <laughs> I am kidding there. All right, the last date, 1963, if I can advance my slide, 1963, anybody have a guess on this one? It, it has to do with the season, I'll say that. Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. <laughs> Not worth repeating. All right, this is the date on which... The Christmas record was released by the Beatles. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> this, this began a tradition of annual releases of Christmas records. <laughs> who, who cares, huh? Never mind. All right. This date in history is complete. 
And, and I, I'm going to mention this because it's important and significant. We all know that tomorrow is Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. Uh, and, and everything else we talk about here almost pales in consideration to that. So tomorrow morning, uh, you know, it was a Sunday uh, that, it, that Pearl Harbor was attacked. So it was a day not unlike today. We don't expect anything bad to happen this morning. Uh, but it was a day much like this uh, that the world changed. Um, so remember that, 79 years ago tomorrow, Pearl Harbor Day. Thank you all for that. Today's National Day, uh, besides being National Pawnbrokers Day, and I'm not sure why, what significance that has, but it is National Microwave Oven Day. You know, and, and the, the, the idea of the microwave was... <coughs> Uh, discovered by accident, a guy that was working on uh, radar waves uh, in a mechanism for radar waves noticed that the candy bars in his pocket were melting as he was around this equipment. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he did a little bit more experimenting and, and guess what he tried to, tried to heat up First, what he tried to do. Anybody have a guess? Popcorn. Popcorn. And, um, and the second thing he tried to do was an egg. And the, and the experiment with the egg didn't work so well. It actually exploded in the face of his coworker. So, um, you know, so eh, whatever. And because I always do something with food, it's National Gazpacho Day. Everybody, everybody like gazpacho soup, cold soup, cold tomato soup. Not my, not exactly my on top of my list either. It is also National Saint Nicholas Day. Uh, saint Nicholas was a third-century saint um, who, according to legend, uh, was very generous in, in the things that he did uh, at the time uh, where he was in Europe. It was kind of a, you know, in, in the wintertime, you'd, you'd want your shoes warm and dry, so you'd leave your shoes and socks next to the fireplace to dry out. And, and legend has it that he helped a poor, uh, a poor family who couldn't afford dowries for their daughters by leaving a gold piece in the shoes of the daughters of this family uh, so that they could have a dowry to get a better marriage. Uh, you know, and, and that's kind of where the stocking tradition comes from, from the, the third century. Uh, long time ago, they've been around for a long time. Uh, St. Nicholas, of, of course, is the guy that inspired the tradition that we call Santa Claus now and all of that, so... All right, tie into the season. Uh, we'll go on from here. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time that you give us to gather together to um, fellowship and to learn and to look into your word. Help us to honor you in all that we say and do this morning, and to you be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. All right, it's going to be kind of an interesting lesson today, and, it, and it's kind of a difficult subject uh, of course, we've been studying Dr. Wood's book, uh, which has taken us through the Bible in a study of uh, 
the coming kingdom. And we are in the, in the last section of the book right now. Why does it matter? Why is it important what we believe about the, the coming kingdom? And we're getting close to the end. We're on, <clears throat> you know, we've looked at these nine areas of theology <coughs> that is impacted by what you believe about the kingdom. And we've gone through each one of these, and I'm not going to go through them again. And we're down to number eight at the moment. Uh, the rise of anti-Israelism uh, because of misconceptions about what the, what the coming kingdom is. Now, anti-Semitism is nothing new. Uh, it's been around for a while. I saw, you saw in that first, uh, this date in history that I showed you in, in 1424 uh, in Barcelona. The Jews were expelled from Barcelona. Uh, so anti-Israelism, anti anti-Semitism has been around a long time, and it's nothing new. Uh, and it has its roots, unfortunately, in the church. Uh, a lot of Jews really know Christian history a little bit better than we do at times. Uh, and, you know, this brings up difficulties in witnessing to Jews and, and sharing your faith with Jews. Uh, but... You know, for 1,900 years, the idea of a Jewish homeland was, was only that, an idea, something that was talked about in the Bible. And Christian churches didn't have to deal with the idea of, of Israel being in her homeland because uh, the Jews were scattered uh, and, and not identifiable as a people group. I mean, they had cultural history and all of that and the religious history that they carried with them. Uh, but they were nowhere near Israel. They were nowhere near the land that was promised to them. So all of this eschatology and, and prophecies in the Bible were just kind of a, a remote thought, an idea that didn't really need to be de dealt with on a contemporary basis. Uh, but... As we all know, in 1948, Israel became a nation uh, in the land, in the, in the Palestinian area, the, the land that's known widely now as Palestine. Uh, Israel was brought back into her land, an area desolate and, and mostly deserted and, and mostly uh, barren. And, has, and she's flourished in that land, which brings up new issues among the church. Okay, so all of these things that are that in the Old, Des Old Testament and New Testament concerning the promises of Israel, a lot of this stuff was, you know, just a, an idea, a concept. But now the presence of Israel in the Middle East uh, brings that reality home a little bit and and the Christian church has tried to deal with us in, in various and sundry ways. And one of the things that we're seeing because of kingdom now theology, uh, if, if we're in the kingdom now, and, and replacement theology brings it in a lot too, if we identify the church erroneously as the new Israel, if we identify the kingdom erroneously as, as being in, in, in some form present now, then what does Israel being in the Middle East have to do with that? So, you know, the, 
one of the things that is happening more and more is that anti-Israel sentiment is coming from the Christian church. Uh, a lot of churches uh, have come out, a lot of progressive churches, even progressive dispensational churches are marginalizing the idea of we need to support Israel because she has a key role in the, in the end times. If you believe that all of that that I've been teaching for the last 80 lessons or so, uh, if, if you don't believe that to be true, if you believe that we truly are in a kingdom now, uh, some form, spiritual or otherwise, of the kingdom now, then nothing that was promised to Israel uh, really matters. So Israel's presence in the Middle East isn't a big deal. Uh, but because we believe that Israel has a key role, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get into this more, but, you know, the, the idea that, that anti-Israel sentiment is on the rise is, is, is really happening. Uh, I found this article uh, about anti-Israel anti sentiment within the Christian church. Christian activism in the Arab-Israeli conflict and theological reflections on the Middle East have evolved around Palestinian liberation theology as a theological political doctrine that scrutinizes Zionism, the existence of Israel, and its policies, developing a biblical hermeneutics that reverses the biblical narrative. In other words, changing the way that you interpret the Bible in order to, to fit the narrative that you want to promote, in order to portray Israel as the wicked regime, regime that operates in the name of a fallacious primitive God and uses false interpretations of scriptures. So if we don't understand scriptures in the right way, it can lead to a marginalization of the role that Israel has in the final times. Um, and, and this is wrong, and, and it's wrong because of the way that our hermeneutics interpret scripture. We are a, very literal in our interpretation. We have a literal hermeneutic here. Um, Mark, Mark Hitchcock and, and Thomas Ice addressed this uh, March Hitchcock says this, every Old Testament prophet except Jonah speaks of a permanent return to the land of Israel by the Jews. Every Old Testament prophet except Jonah. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good endorsement of the idea that, that Israel is going to stay, uh, return and stay in our land. And this divine regathering prediction that, that we see, you know, we know that God is pretty good at returning Israel to her land, returning the Jews to the land of Israel. Uh, we saw it the first time when, when in Genesis the, it was promised that, you know, you'll go to Egypt, but after 400 years I'll bring you back. And that was fulfilled as we see in the book of Joshua. And the second time God regathered them was after the dispersion uh, after they went to Babylon. Uh, and, and we read about the return of, of the Jews to the land of Israel and Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the, the prophecy in Ezekiel that they would return a third time from the diaspora uh, to Israel's full restoration of the land. Uh, we see that in Ezekiel. 
uh, predicted, and we believe it will be fulfilled in the millennial, uh, the millennial kingdom, which is yet to come. But there are those in evangelical Christian circles, a, a lot of people in evangelical Christian circles, and names that you'll recognize, maybe not this one so much, uh, although I've quoted him quite a bit. Alvin McLean says this, and he's talking about the con confusion of our Lord's rule leads to serious consequences. It makes the present age the period of the mediatorial kingdom, kingdom now, and it dissolves this, this confusion, this, this mistaken theology brings in, uh, it, it dissolves the divinely covenanted purpose in the nation of Israel. We know that the nation of Israel has a deep covenantal purpose in the end times. Uh, a lot of these preachers that preach about, you know, Israel's not important, the church has taken over the role of Israel, the promises made to yeah, here's an interesting point. You know, uh, the churches have, in replacement theology, they say that the church has replaced Israel, and now all the promises, the blessings that are promised to Israel are now, are now transferred to the church. Of course, they'll take the blessings, uh, but a lot of those blessings come with curses as well, and they're not so willing to take the curses, but we won't, we won't dwell on that right now. Uh, Gary DeMar uh, says this, God has not called us to forsake the earth, but to impress heaven's pattern on the earth. We're to, we're to bring heaven to earth. He similarly notes Christians must be obedient to the mandate God has given to extend his kingdom to every sphere of, of life, to every corner on the globe. The following quotes and sources from various kingdom now theologians, such and there's a lot of the quotes that are in the book, and I won't bring you... Uh, a lot of those now. Uh, Gary, Gary DeMar in another place says, where is the super sign? Identifying Israel is, is a key to the, <laughs> to the end times, and I believe it's in the Bible. But he questions, where is the super sign found in the Bible? Not in the New Testament. There's not a single verse in the New Testament that says anything about Israel becoming a nation again. Nothing prophetic in the New Testament depends on Israel becoming a nation again. If Israel becoming a nation again is such a significant sign, then why doesn't the New Testament specifically mention it? And I did a little word search in the New Testament. The word Israel is found 79 times in the NASB. 79 times it mentions Israel in the, in the New American Standard Bible. And I looked up every one of them. Every one of those references to the nation of Israel. And several of them, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Because starting in Matthew chapter 2, which is, I believe, in the New Testament. And I didn't have this one down. Uh, where is the verse that I'm thinking of? Well, I'm, maybe I've got it wrong. But early in Matthew, and I, and I don't have the right reference, and I apologize for that. 
it ties, when it, when it uses the, the phrase Israel in Matthew 2, and I don't have the verse and I apologize, it also ties it to the Lamb. Uh, and, and frequently in those 79 verses, there was a connection between the land and the use of the word Israel. But every place in, in all 79 of those references, it's talking about the Jews. It's not talking about the church. So to transfer this concept of Israel that when the New Testament talks about Israel, it's talking about the church, really ignores all of those references uh, you have to put blinders on not to see that those references uh, refer to the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob uh, and Abraham and the, and the fathers. So, you know, th there's that close nexus between the use of the word Israel in the New Testament and the land and the people of Israel. So keep that in mind as, as we read some of these. Uh, Gary North continues, the goal of establishing Christ's international kingdom can be presented to citizens of any nation. Christians are required to become active in the building of God's visible kingdom. We have to build this kingdom up. We have to make it right so that Christ can come back. If that's, that's a kingdom now theology, that's not my theology. If the Christian church fails to build the visible kingdom by means of biblical law and the power of the gospel despite the resurrection of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then what kind of religion are we preaching? The parable in Matthew refers to the building of the kingdom of the church, of, of God, not simply the institutional church. So he tries to make that connection between building of the church and building of the kingdom. And this, the phraseology he's using here doesn't sound too bad. Except that you have to understand the philosophies behind it. And Thomas Ice responded to this, pass, this verbiage by Gary North in this way. Thomas Ice reports, Gary North has boasted that he already has in his computer a book for when Israel gets pushed into the sea or converted to Christ. So his idea, his Gary North's philosophy is that Israel is not important to the, to the full implementation of the kingdom and, and they are incidental to everything. Now they wouldn't, many of these theologians, kingdom now theologians, wouldn't deny that Israel has a role uh, in the future that they will be a part of the kingdom, just like Canada or Japan or Cleveland or I any of these places in the world. You know, Israel will have a place there, a role, where I believe that Israel is the key uh, to the future. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, Reformed theology definitely denies the church as this interim thing, but replacement of Israel and, and the role in the future. Uh, a Reformed theologian says this, we're not dispensationalists here. We believe that the church is essentially Israel. We believe that the answer to what about the Jews is here we are. 
We deny that the church is God's plan B. Fair enough. I deny that God, the church is God's plan B. I believe that God intended for this all along. He kept it a secret in the Old Testament because he was dealing with the Jews at the time. This new man, this new revelation came about in the New Testament. So going back to the quote there, we are again one people. In his holy and heavenly temple there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, pre-mill or post-mill. There we are all together, the Israel of God, princes with God and the ecclesia, the set-apart ones. Edmund Clowney has this to say. He's a, a Kingdom Now theologian. The, the story of the church begins with Israel, the Old Testament people of God. The identity of the church is necessary for the mission of the church. Only as a holy nation called out of the darkness into the light of God's presence, only, only as a holy nation can the church discharge its mission. Peter affirms the church's rights to the titles of Israel, then describes the church's witness of praise. This understanding of the church as the new and true Israel of Christ must inspire our mission to the contemporary world. So this is not some, well. David Turner says, uh, makes this connection as well. It is clear that the above are connected with the number 12. This number is perhaps the most familiar number of the Bible, the most frequently associated with the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles of the new Israel, the church. So we have taken the place of those 12 tribes now, according to David Turner. And there are, Stanley Toussaint defends uh, the normative dispensational belief. Of, of, this de, de, of this designation, normative dispensationalist Stanley Toussaint, uh, Toussaint appropriately comments, this is precariously close to replacement theology. These quotes by progressive dispensationalists that I just read. Now the Bible does defend our position as well. Romans 11, verses 12 through 15. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is... Keep in mind where we're at. We, we taught Romans here. You, you went through Romans. It was a while ago. Now, you know, one of the, the keys in, in, the, in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 9, 9, 10, and 11, are, are, are keys to that book. And, and a proper understanding of those three chapters really helps with the insight that you need to have. Romans 9 uh, speaks to and addresses Israel's past. Romans 10 speaks to and addresses Romans or the Israel's present at the time that Christ was on the earth. And Romans 11 speaks of Israel's future. Uh, and if you understand those three chapters that way, the book really makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Uh, and I've had some interesting discussions with replacement, the, uh, replacement believers uh, about those three chapters. And when, when they look at them in that way, it, it really pulls the rug out of a lot of their arguments. So 
in Romans 11, we're talking about Israel's future. So now if they're, speaking of, of Israel, if their transgression is riches for the world, in other words, because Israel failed to recognize Christ when he came the first time, if, if that transgression was riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, because Israel failed to incorporate the kingdom at that time, that opened the door for Christ's plan A, <laughs> uh, the church to come and bring in Gentile uh, in, into his family. But I'm, uh, if their failure, if Israel's failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, will their fulfillment be? And that is looking at when, when Israel finally comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and calls upon the name of the Lord, how much more will their success be for the world? Uh, because what event will that bring in? That'll bring in the, the millennial kingdom and the physical rule of Christ here on earth. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I, an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy uh, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. I think God is using the church because he's focusing on the church in this church age. Uh, Israel uh, is going to see the, the, the blessings that have fallen on the church. And if that brings some to jealousy, if that brings some to a realization that God is truly at work, in the Gentile world, maybe, maybe that will help bring them closer to where they need to be. For if their rejection is reconciliation to the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? Matthew 23, uh, verses 37 through 39, and this is Christ speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, identifying the people of the world. No, he's talking to the Jews here. He's talking to Israel here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. And, and the word gather there is the, the Greek word episenago, uh, from which we get the word synagogue. So he's, he's envisioning a, a, a gathering, a Jewish gathering here. Uh, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you... Well, let's see. What could, what could that... He doesn't say until the church builds the kingdom up and the earth good enough that I can come back. And he doesn't say until Christian people call upon the name of the Lord. He's speaking to Jews here and he's saying, you will not see me until you, the Jews say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says this. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. Definitely a reference to Israel, Zion, and, and the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, not just a mountain, uh, but this will be the focus of the world. And it will be raised above the hills. 
and all of the nations will stream to it. All of the nations. All of the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Is this describing a nation who is only one of many in the world in that millennial kingdom? And I say, no. Uh, this is describing Israel as the preeminent nation in the, in the coming kingdom. And I believe that that has yet to, I believe that has yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the coming kingdom. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, we read this, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king. Now what we're talking about here, this is, this is a millennial passage. This is a kingdom passage. Uh, so it's nothing that's happened as yet in history. Uh, but it's talking about in that tribulation period, all of the nations would come against Israel. And in the time preceding uh, the tribulation period. And it's interesting to understand that in those scriptures, it doesn't say all the nations except the United States that came against Israel. Uh, I, I think we will be falling away. Uh, I believe that we're included in that group of all the nations uh, that went against Jerusalem. And, and we need to be careful of that and, and we need to guard against that. Uh, we need to be true to scripture. All these nations that go against Jerusalem will go up uh, year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be there's curses on those that don't do this. Uh, and that, that follows in this, in this passage. Uh, Robert Thomas says, at the end of the millennial, at the end of the millennium, that city will be Satan's prime objective with his rebel army because Israel will be the leader among the nations, a leader among the nations. Israel, at the end of the, the millennial kingdom, when Satan is released from the abyss to do his final battle, uh, where does he go to fight? He goes to fight Jerusalem. He goes to siege Jerusalem because that is the center of power. That is the center of influence in the millennial kingdom. John Walvrood says this, of, of the many peculiar phenomena which characterize the present generation, few events can claim equal significance as far as biblical prophecy is concerned with that of the return of Israel to their land. It constitutes a preparation for the end of the age, the setting for the coming of the Lord for his church, and the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic destiny. So Israel, I'm not claiming that Israel is spiritually gathered. Uh, that's not the point that I'm making here. And I believe that there are two, two regatherings that are, are discussed in the end times. That there's, uh, think about the, uh, the, the, the Valley of Dry Bones vision uh, in the Old Testament. You know, what happened there when, when the prophet saw the dry bones gathered together and made skeletons and then the, the sinews and the flesh was added? 
but it wasn't until God breathed the breath of life in them. And, and it says in that passage that this represents the whole house of Israel. So there's going to be a gathering, uh, uh, and a gathering perhaps not a spiritual gathering, but a physical gathering. So we've got, we've got Israel uh, in, a secular realm, in the secular realm gathered back to the land of Israel. And, and she's only in part of the land, a very small part. Um, I, I guess, you know, it's less than 1% of the Middle East is occupied by Israel now. Uh, 1% of the land that was promised to Abraham is occupied by Israel at the moment. Uh, and and they're, they're in unbelief, and, and they've been restored to the land, uh, but not to the other promises, the, the influence, the, the preeminence that has been promised. And all of this is yet to come. And, and I believe that they are going to be permanently regathered uh, in the promises that we see in the book of Revelation and, and, and the other places where all these things are promised to Israel are going to take place, and they're going to take place in that millennial kingdom. Uh, so they will be totally regathered, God will breathe the breath of life into them so that they're spiritually restored and renewed. And, and all of this will take place as a result of the tribulation. Um, but the church today tries to minimize all of this. All of this, this preeminent place that, that Israel has in God's, God's future for the world. Uh, Lynn Hybels says this, it is true, I am not a Christian Zionist. I do, I do not hold to a theology asserting that the modern state of Israel represents a divinely mandated return of ancient Israel to the promised land. Now this character, this situation where Jews are living as a nation, as an identifiable nation and people group in the Middle East, hasn't been in existence since AD 70. Uh, there were remnants there for a couple decades after that, but you know, for 1,900 years, she hasn't been there, and now she is. And that is something that true students of the Bible ought to pay attention to. And, and Lynn Hybels adds, at the same time, I wholeheartedly support justice for the Palestinians. Uh, Tony Campalo has this to say as well. In, in, in agreement, Tony Campalo says, Israel is a little nation that has, surprised, that has survived primarily because of the wealth and war materials that is supplied by the United States government. God didn't bring Israel back to the land. The United States brought Israel back to the land. And the only reason she's still there is because the United States supports her and gives her money. Tony Campalo talks a lot about the grafting uh, of, of the nation of Israel back into the, you know, in, in, the, <clears throat> in the story about, you know, the, the branches are taken away, the unproducing, and the, the grafting in the Gentiles that the, the nation of Israel get back, will get regrafted back into the church. And so his philosophy and idea there uh, is that uh, Israel has a role in the future and she'll become part of the church, uh, which is the new Israel. So that's kind of Tony Campalo's theology. Uh, 
and I believe it's wrong. I don't believe that's what the, the what that teaches. John Piper, uh, a familiar name to all of us, God has a saving purpose for Israel. All Israel will someday turn to the Lord of will turn will turn to the Lord Christ as a group. It is my deep understanding and belief of Romans 11. The broken off branches will be grafted in one day to the people of God, the bride of his Christ, the church. They'll become a part of the church, but the significance is lost. Paul Wilkinson says this, On the basis of this kind of statement, many in the church are being misled into believe that Piper stands with Israel. They'll be grafted back in. They're having a role. He doesn't... Uh, Piper doesn't come out and, and say he's against Israel. But he does not stand with Israel. What Piper said is not what Paul taught. Israel's destiny as a nation is not one of spiritual incorporation into the church, which is the classic Reformed Calvinistic teaching. The church comprises individual Jews and Gentiles, not national Israel, which is a distinct national entity. The appointed destiny for Israel is for her to remain a nation in the sight of God and in the midst of all the nations for as long as God's fixed order of creation endures. And that's from Jeremiah 31, 36, which talks about Israel will be a nation as long as the stars and the sun exist. Jeremiah 31, here's the passage. And thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that his waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. And Christian anti-Semitism is not anything new. Uh, as we saw from the this day in history from 1424. Uh, but here's a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a treatise late in his life, an 80-page treatise called uh, The Jews and Their Lies. Uh, and he said this, First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. That's the charging of loans. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, and the spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive the rascally, lazy bones out of their system. Therefore, away with them. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that, we may, so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable devilish burden the Jews. Now, it is also noted in the historical writings that as he was dying, Martin Luther said, we need to love the Jews as Christians. 
So maybe all was not totally lost, but this was a predominant feeling in the Christian church for a long time, going back to the Middle Ages and beyond. Uh, this wasn't something that was new with Luther, uh, but definitely uh, was a part of the, of the time that Luther lived in. Uh, the Encyclopedia Judicia says, short of the Auschwitz oven and the extermination, the whole Nazi Holocaust is pre-outlined here, speaking of that, that treatise that, that Luther wrote. And a rabbi has written uh, about this and, and makes four distinct points. Uh, you know, he likens Luther to Muhammad because both men initially had a love for the Jews, but later turned in hate against the Jews when the Jews would not convert. Here are some of his quotes. Luther was to pen the most anti-Semitic writings produced in Germany until the time of Hitler. On one occasion, this earlier exponent of Christian love said, being a little facetious there, the sarcasm light was on, I would threaten to cut their tongues out from their throats if they refused to acknowledge the truth that God is a trinity and not a plain unity. Further, he says, at the Nuremberg trials, Nazi propagandist Julius Streicher defended himself with the claim that he had not said anything worse about the Jews than had Martin Luther. And Hitler loudly proclaimed Luther as an ally. He saw the Jews as we are only beginning to see them today. And I actually found that quote from Hitler uh, in a conversation he had with a Roman Catholic priest. He, Hitler said this, I have been attacked because of my handling of the Jewish question. God forgive me, I never thought I'd quote Hitler in this class. The Catholic Church considered the Jews pestilent for 1,500 years, put them in ghettos and, and so on, because it recognized the Jews for what they were. In the epoch of liberalism, the danger was no longer recognized. Hitler said, I am moving back toward the time in which a 1,500-year-long tradition was implemented. I do not set race over religion, but I recognize the representatives of this race as a pestilent for the state and for the church, and perhaps I am thereby doing Christianity a great service by pushing them out of the schools and public functions. Again, building on what, what was there in Luther's writings. Luther wasn't alone. John Calvin, although he wasn't quite as outspoken, and I'm way out of time again, he was, was not quite as outspoken uh, but he did have a disdain for the Jews. But he, here, he, in speaking about a rabbi, he not only betrays his ignorance, but his utter stupidity, since God so blinded the whole people, they were like restive dogs. I have never had much conversation with, I have had much conversation with many Jews. I have never seen either a drop of piety or a grain of truth or ingenuousness. Nay, I have never found common sense in any Jew. But this fellow, this, this rabbi, who seems so sharp and ingenious, displays his own, his own impudence to his great disgrace. So there is a building, there's a building anti-Semitism 
in today's society. And you can look, I looked through some news articles and, and read, read several. Uh, Rick Wiles, do you guys know who Rick Wiles is? He's True News is his website and uh, it's perhaps the most misnamed website in, in all of the world. Um, but he talks about the idea of pre-trib uh, beliefs as being a, a product of the Jews, uh, that it was done in order to gain a Zionist sentiment in the Christian church instead of looking at the Bible and seeing what the Bible says. Uh, and he, he says this, they had to create the pre-trib rapture doctrine to justify Christian Zionism. That's where it all came from. But it is, isn't it interesting uh, that the Amer where the American Evangelical Church has been taken over by Christian Zionism, the American Evangelical Church has lost its flavor, blaming the de degradation of the influence of the Christian Church on, on this Zionism movement. But he talks about uh, they took control of the churches in America, the Christian Zionists. They changed the gospel. They took Jesus off the cross. They replaced the cross with the Star of David. Oh, wait a minute. We still have the cross here. None of this is true. Uh, but it fits a narrative that, that anti-Zionism and anti-Israelism is a growing movement within the evangelical Christian church. Uh, and it it's, comes as a result of, an, of a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation and a misapplication of all those prophecies that tell us that this coming kingdom is coming, that Christ will rule from Jerusalem with Israel in her land as promised to Abraham and the forefathers. All of this has been promised and, and it's growing. Uh, and that's really, that's really happening because of a misunderstanding of, of Christian scriptures and a misunderstanding of, of interpretation that is, that is fixed by a, a literal interpretation of scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly